God, thank you so much, uh, Lord, for the privilege of being able to gather as a church family on Christmas morning. Lord, as we have been reflecting on the birth of Jesus, Lord, I pray as we think about what was behind that gift, what was driving that gift, that you would help us to understand your great and endless love for us. Lord, I pray this morning that, um, Lord, that your love would warm us today, that we would experience it in a tangible way, or not just theologically, not just cognitively, but uh, Lord, that we would experience it in the deep places of our hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, self-portraits have been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, with no uh, photography or smartphones, this was the way to be uh, remembered. Uh, kings and queens and other members of royal families would have self-portraits made of themselves and displayed in prominent locations in order to be uh, remembered. You either had a self-portrait made of you by an artist or a statue made of you, and this was the way to be uh, remembered. Now, the goal of this was to provide an accurate depiction of what the individual looked like. So the individual would sit there, an artist would come in and would create uh, or attempt to create an exact portrait of that individual. And as helpful as portraits can be, there is no portrait that's 100% accurate of the one that's being portrayed. See, what began to happen, especially with people that were in royal families, kings and queens, is that over time, it was less about capturing reality and more about capturing what the individual wanted to be remembered by. (laughs) They, They wanted to be portrayed as more beautiful or more handsome or kinder or wiser than what they actually were. I share that with you this morning because as we consider 1 John chapter 4, what we have here in this passage is a beautiful portrait of God's love. And unlike human portrait portraits, what we have here is a portrait of God's love with 100% accuracy. That as we look at this passage here, there's no exaggeration of God's love. There's no wondering, is God's love being embellished here? Is, is, there, is there an element of God's love here that, that's not actually true? No, we can trust every word in this book. We can trust every word in this passage that as it's depicting for us, as it's capturing and explaining God's love, we can trust that it's true. And so on Christmas morning, what we're going to see in this passage is three aspects of this portrait of God's love. So let's first, let's read this passage together, starting in verse John chapter Four, uh, starting in verse 7. Word of God reads this way. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is the word of the Lord. So three aspects of God's love. Here's the first one I want us to see is that God's love comes from God because God is love. If you look at verses seven through eight, John tells us that love is from God. The end of verse 8 says, God is love. Now, this is one of only a few times in which God is actually identified with one of his attributes. But notice, it doesn't say that God is loving, 
but God is love. So we can't misunderstand this. It's not saying that the emotion of love is always God or that love is God's only attribute. Rather, God is love. See, what this shows us is that God and love, they're clearly not at odds with one another. Love is core to God's being. When John says that love is from God, he doesn't mean it's from him as if letters are from a mailman or even letters are from a friend. Rather, what he means here is that love is from God the way that heat is from fire or the way that light is from the sun, that love belongs to God's nature. It's woven into what he is. It's part of what it means to be God means that there's something about God's nature that makes love absolutely necessary. So love is not just what God does, it's part of who he is. So the sun gives light because it is light, and fire gives heat because it is heat. God is love. John Piper tries to explain it this way. He says that God's absolute fullness of life and truth and beauty and goodness and all other perfections is such that he is not only self-sufficient, but also in his very nature overflowing. That God is so absolute, so perfect, so complete, so full, so inexhaustibly resourceful, so joyful that he is by nature a giver, a worker for others, a helper, a protector. What it means to be God is to be so full enough always to overflow and never to need, never murmur, never pout. God is love. I find that kind of a helpful description of, of who God is and how he kind of operates with his people. God is so full of all of his attributes, including love, that they overflow out of himself and onto all that he does. This is mind-blowing just to kind of think about who God is and, and how we experience him. And yet it's amazing to consider just one little piece of the puzzle of God being about love. God's love is so vast. In fact, one of my favorite hymns is the love of God that kind of explains the vastness of God's love. I want you to just read these lyrics with me. It says, oh, love of God, how rich and pure how measureless and strong it shall forevermore endure. The saints and angels song, could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the whole contain the scroll through stretched from sky to sky." It's such beautiful words and description of the vastness, the endlessness of God's love. Over the years, when my family and I, when we go on vacation uh, to the beach, I usually take my kids out into the water, into the waves. And recently, I took one of my daughters out there into the water, and the waves were kind of coming up, and, and I wanted her to kind of just experience the waves and what that feels like. Well, the water, the waves actually hit her in, in the stomach, and she kind of got scared a little bit. She grabbed my hand even harder, and she said, Daddy, 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 that's too deep. That's too deep. And so we went back, and I thought to myself, oh, man, you have no idea. Like, you have no idea how deep and how vast the ocean actually is. It just keeps going on and on and on. 
Well, church, that's a picture of God's love and the vastness and how endless God's love is. That because it's part of his nature, because it comes from God, it's sourced in God, that means it's infinite. It's endless. We cannot exhaust it. We cannot fully comprehend it. We cannot fully experience it. Now, we get little doses of it here and there, just like my daughter did of the ocean there when it came up to her stomach. And those are, those are great gifts. But for us, just to understand how big God's love is because it's in him, it's from him, and he is eternal. Can't wait to experience more of God's love for all of eternity. So that's the first aspect of this portrait of God's love. It comes from him. But here's the second aspect of God's love I want us to see is that it's displayed only because it's initiating. So God manifests his love by taking the first step. Look at verse 9 with me. It says, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Notice what John is saying here. John is declaring that, yes, God has displayed his love. He's put it, he's manifested it, but only by taking the first step in sending his son. It's not that God waited for us to behave a certain way, and then he sent his son. No, God takes the first step. God initiated this whole process of saving us by displaying his perfect love. I think as we consider these three aspects, all of these are so unlike the human love, our love, apart from God's power. But this one is most challenging, I feel like. Because when we think about the way that we display love or when we give our love to others, usually there are conditions to it. Usually there's some sort of requirements for the individual in order for us to give them our love. Usually we think, okay, they need to be likable. They need to be beautiful. They need to be this. They need to be that. They need to love me in return. All of these requirements and conditions, then I'll give them my love. But that's not the way that God loves at all. God loves not because of who we are, but because of who he is. To illustrate this, uh, D.A. Carson has a powerful uh, illustration of this. He, he says, hey, imagine for a moment you have a man named Charles and a woman named Susan. And they're in a relationship together and they're walking down a beach together. And, and Charles turns to Susan. And, and as the sun is setting, he looks deeply into her eyes and he says, Susan, I love you. I really do. Now, what does he mean? D.A. Carson says, well, at the very least, he means something like this. Susan, you mean everything to me. I can't live without you. Your smile stuns me from 50 yards. Your good humor, your beautiful eyes, the scent of your hair, everything about you transfixes me. I love you. Right? He could mean that, right? What he certainly does not mean is something like this. Susan, Quite frankly, you have such a bad case of bad breath, it would embarrass a herd of unwashed garlic-eating elephants. Your nose is so large, you belong in the cartoons. Your hair is so greasy, it could lubricate an 18-wheeler. Your knees are so disjointed, you make a camel look elegant. Your personality makes Attila the Hun look like wimps, but I love you. Right? It probably doesn't mean that. But when we consider for a moment, when God comes to us, when we read this passage 
And it says, God is love. God loves you. He manifested the love. What does he mean by that? What does it mean that God loves us? Does it mean something like this? Does God say, you mean everything to me? I can't live without you? Your personality, your witty conversation, your beauty, your smile, everything about you transfixes me. That heaven would be boring without you. I love you. Is that what God, God's love means? I think the average person, kind of the default is like, yeah, that, that's what it means that God loves us. That God is pretty miserable up there in heaven unless we say yes to his love. That he's in this dreadful state, he's, he's all alone up there, and we really need to accept his love to do him a favor. No, when God says that he loves us, God actually means something like this. Morally speaking, you are the people of the bad breath, the enormous nose, the greasy hair, the disjointed knees, the offensive personality, that your sins have made you disgustingly ugly, but I love you anyway. Not because you're attractive, not because of what you provide for me, but because it is my nature to love. See, in our relationship with God, God takes the first step. He initiates this love for us. He puts it on display, not because of us, but despite us, because it's his nature to love. Well, finally, here's the third aspect of God's love in this passage is that God's love is life-changing because it is sacrificial. Life-changing because it's sacrificial. John says in verse 10, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, I know it's Christmas morning, but we're going to learn an important and deep theological word today, the word propitiation. And I think we need to understand this concept if we're going to understand this important aspect of God's love. Propitiation is used to describe the appeasing or pacifying of God's wrath. It actually refers to the, the turning away of God's wrath because it's been satisfied. And it's been satisfied because of Jesus, because of his great sacrifice for us on the cross. Now, why is this such an important portrait of God's love? It's because the cross is the epicenter of God's love. You know, it's Christmas morning. We talk about the manger a lot, and we should, right? The incarnation, beautiful, amazing miracle driven by God's love, yes and amen to that. But the apex of God's love is actually the cross, that the cross is the irrefutable proof that God is for you and not against you, that love is what drove God to sacrifice his one and only son in order to save us from our sins, that the son of God, Jesus Christ, he bled and he died in order to take away our sins, in order to satisfy God's wrath and purchase our forgiveness. And it's not when we were so cleaned up morally. I can't emphasize that enough. It's not really about us. It's about who he is, that God sent Jesus to die for us, not when we were pursuing godliness, not when we were looking nice ethically and morally. No, the scriptures say, Romans 5, 8, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were at our worst, Christ died for us. That the only thing we had to offer was our wretchedness, 
And yet God displayed his sacrificial love for us. And this is a love unlike anything else in this world. This is a love that that is so sacrificial that he would give up his only son in order to save us. And I think as we consider these verses here, as we consider this portrait of God's love on Christmas morning, these verses are not meant just to kind of stimulate us intellectually. No, these verses, this portrait is meant to move us and woo us and wow us about God's love for us to such a degree that it changes the way that we live. First, to look at how God loves me, a sinner. I used to be an enemy of God. He loves me and poured out his love for me by giving up his only son. God did that for me. Then the correct response is to live for him. The correct response is for him to display his love so greatly that it changes how we live. And one of my favorite aspects of, of being a dad is when one of my kids gives me one of those impromptu, spontaneous, unprovoked hugs. Love that aspect of being a dad. In fact, it happens almost every time I get home uh, f- from work. I-, I walk into the house and, you know, a couple of my kids will just run up to me and give me a hug. Milo's in that stage right now where he, he, he sees me come in. He's like, Daddy, Daddy's home. And he runs up and he gives me a big hug. And I love that moment. But when you consider that, and and you ask the question, before I embraced him, before I hugged him, before I kissed him, before I told him I loved him and missed him, was Milo any less of my son? Did I love him any less? Like when I was at work and, and I was away from him and not embracing him, not kissing him, not telling him that I loved him, was he any less of my son? Absolutely not. Was he more of my son when I embraced him, when I kissed him? when I told him that I loved him? Did I love him more in those moments? No. Subjectively and legally, uh, there was no difference at all. But subjectively and experientially, absolutely made all the difference in the world for Milo. As I was embracing him and, and kissing him and telling him I loved him, he was tangibly feeling his sonship. He was experiencing in a deep place my love for him. And I think that's the point of this passage. That's the point of God's word is it gives us these portraits and these explanations and descriptions of God's love for us so that we can experience his love, not just up here, but in the deep places of our hearts. See, these truths, when we actually comprehend them. They enable us to say, man, if someone is as all-powerful as God is, and as he loves me and delights in me, as he's gone to infinite lengths in order to save me, that he's a God who will never let me go. He will always hold me fast. If all of that is true, then my love belongs to him forever. I will submit and live for him. And I wonder if on Christmas morning, you're here today and you're hearing all of these things about God's love, that God loves you. And yet I do wonder if maybe there are some of us who are here and you're doubting God's love for you. That for whatever reason, you're thinking to yourself, yeah, that's true, maybe theologically, or maybe that's true for other people, but there's no way that God loves me. And maybe you're thinking that here today, because perhaps your life is in shambles, 
Maybe there's a lot of brokenness in your life right now. Maybe there's a lot of emptiness and dysfunction, and you're thinking to yourself, there's no way that the God of the universe could love me. Or maybe you're here today, and, and on the outside, your life looks pretty cleaned up. On the outside, it looks like you've got it all together, but inwardly, there's emptiness, there's darkness, and maybe you too, maybe you're doubting God's love for you. There's all kinds of reasons why we might doubt God's love. Perhaps you're listening to all these other voices in in your head, in your heart, these voices that are saying, no, no, look at this sin, or look at this doubt, or look at the way that you're living. There's no way that God loves you. Look, on Christmas morning, I'm here to declare to you that yes, it's true. God loves you. God absolutely loves you. And the reason why I know that's true, not just because of God's word, but because there is objective evidence on the cross that that is the voice that will drown out and silence all other voices that when you doubt God's love for you, look to the cross. John 15, 13 says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And that's Jesus. That Christmas had its goal, Good Friday, when Jesus died, and Easter Sunday, the resurrection, when Jesus triumphed over death, that he gave a lethal blow to Satan, our enemy. And Jesus paved the way to be reconciled with our creator once and for all. That God's sacrificial love of sending Jesus was all because he loves you. That God loves you. And again, I don't know who needs to hear that just out loud. Again, not cognitively and not theologically, but just for you to rest today in the fact that God loves you. In fact, your joy in God will only be as full as to the degree that you believe and experience that God loves you and that he loves you not because of you, Here's the best news. The best news is that he loves you and you've done nothing to earn it. I'll close with this. One theologian put it this way, that my deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. God loves you not because of you, but despite you, because it's his nature to love you. God is love. Let's pray together. Lord, we do give you praise for your endless and perfect and sacrificial love. God, we could go on and on, and we will go on and on forever and ever, basking in your great love for us. The many ways that you've displayed your love in our lives and ultimately in the sending of Jesus as we celebrate him on Christmas morning, we also reflect on the mission that he accomplished on the cross that he died in our place, that he paid for our sins, and by doing so, not only purchased our forgiveness and our freedom, but in it, he displayed the love that he has for us. So God, would you use this passage, would you use this morning to warm our hearts, knowing that we are loved by our creator. We thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen.